Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Pediatric Emergencies Podcast. So I can't believe it's been so long since I last put out a podcast. Um, I was recently doing a bit of work on the website and I looked back and seen that it was actually the end of April last year that I put out the podcast on leadership in a paediatric emergency. So that's too long. Um, so I've made an effort and I'm going to get back into the, the podcast and again try and do them a bit more regularly. Um, my New Year's resolution for this year. Um, so I'm back with more paediatric critical care perils for you today. Before I get into that, though, I want to make a couple of announcements. Um, and the first one's related to the Paediatric Emergencies Intubation course, which has been running um, over the last few years, and it's been a great success. And it's been great to meet a number of listeners of the Paediatric Emergencies podcast on the courses. Um, and one of the things I want to mention about this, um, firstly, um, we actually have a couple of spaces left on our October course for this year. Um, the course is happening in Belfast on the 10th of October. Um, and like I say, I think there's a couple of spaces left on that course. And this is quite rare because this course has been sold out um, two years in advance um, over the last few years. So if this is something you've been thinking about getting on to, you can book that on the Paediatric Emergencies website. Um, one of the visions we had for this course was that even if you physically weren't able to attend it, you were able to access the learning resources online. Um, and if you head over to the Paediatric Emergencies um, website, um, you'll find our complete course manual um, available for viewing online. And this course manual is absolutely full of pictures and videos um, and is a great learning resource. Um, it can also be downloaded as an iBook from the iBook store. And one of the things you might not be aware of is the course manual actually contains a video library of real intubations in children. And this is an excellent learning resource for anybody new to intubating children. Um, they've all been recorded with a range of video laryngoscopes. So again, if somebody who's more experienced and wants to learn about the differences between the different video laryngoscopes, it's a great resource for them as well. So again, many of you may not be aware this exists, so have a look at it. It's all available freely on the Paediatric Emergencies website. The other course that um, we decided to set up recently is the Waiting for Retrieval Team course. So this is covering the initial resuscitation and stabilisation of the critically ill child. The course is happening on the 5th of April in Belfast and we've got a great faculty here, all great speakers and experts in paediatric critical care um, and we've got an action-packed day for you. Again, this course, I think there's three spaces left for it. Um, it's likely to sell out within the next week or so. So if you weren't aware of it and are interested in going, I would encourage you to get the tickets booked up before they're gone. Okay, so that's enough of that. Um, let's get to what you all came here today for, and that's the Paediatric Critical Care Pearls. Um, so today's podcast is actually the fifth podcast in a series looking at Paediatric Critical Care Pearls. Um, they're in no particular order, so this is your first time listening. Um, don't feel you have to listen to them in order. Um, I've just got another 10 paediatric critical care pearls chosen at random here for you today. So I'm going to get started with the first one. Um, so pearl number 41 is don't hyperventilate an intubated asthmatic or a neonate with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Um, although the theme is the same, the reason behind it is different. So I'm going to look at each of them in turn. Um, so I have done a podcast on asthma before, um, and one of the big concerns, obviously, with when you're intubating an asthmatic is air trapping. And if you look at an asthmatic, when you examine them prior to intubation, 
you'll notice that they have prolongation of their expiratory phase. And that's because in asthma, you don't have trouble getting air into the lungs, but you do have trouble getting it out. And you hear that, the, the delay in getting the air out with prolongation of the expiratory phase and the expiratory wheezing noise. So that's difficulty getting air out. And in a patient who's awake and doing their, looking after their own breathing, they won't take another breath in until they've emptied their lungs. But the difficulty is whenever you take over and intubate and ventilate an asthmatic, you still have the same problems of getting air out of the lungs. Um, but because you're now in control of it, um, you may actually give another breath in before the lungs are fully emptied. And if that continues on um, with each breath, more air stays in the lungs at the end of the breath. What happens is the lungs actually become more and more and more inflated. And you get an effect similar to attention pneumothorax, um, where the overinflated lungs start to impair venous return coming back to the heart. Um, you get reduced preload, and you get the patient then goes on and arrests. So this is air trapping that you get in an asthmatic. One of the big times the patients are at risk of this is immediately following intubation. Um, and the reason for that is your own adrenaline is high. And your natural response when you're ventilating one of these patients by hand is to hyperventilate them. You're not even thinking, but it's just your own adrenaline goes and you ventilate the patient quite quickly. And like I've said, if, you're, if the lungs haven't emptied, you're going to get air trapping. So I think one of the key things in this scenario is to say to yourself, before you intubate the patient, I need to ventilate slowly. Or even more important, say to somebody else there, um, I want you to remind me after intubation to ventilate slowly. And then you need to watch the patient, making sure the chest has fully emptied, expiration is finished before you give the next breath, or you're going to get yourself into trouble. Okay, so the second problem is hypoplastic left heart syndrome and why you don't want to hyperventilate these babies. Um, and the problem with intubating these babies is that if you do normal, standard um, intubation care, you can cause these babies to arrest very quickly. And that's due to their anatomy. Um, so these babies have an underdeveloped left side of the heart. So their right heart is supplying both the systemic and pulmonary circulation. So when blood comes out of the right ventricle, it goes into the pulmonary arteries. Um, and then it can go it can go one of two ways from the main pulmonary artery. It can go across the duct to the systemic circulation or can continue out the right and left pulmonary artery to the lungs. And which way the blood goes um, depends on the pulmonary vascular resistance. So the blood will just follow the path of least resistance. So if your pulmonary arteries are constricted, it makes it more difficult for the blood to get to the lungs. So um, the blood will then, in preference, go across the duct um, to the systemic circulation. However, if your pulmonaries are very dilated, um, more of the blood will go to the lungs. So it follows the path of least resistance. And you'll get much less blood going across the duct to the systemic circulation. So anything you do to these babies that causes the pulmonary vascular resistance to fall can cause blood to go to the lungs and perhaps the systemic circulation. So you actually can end up with no systemic blood flow if you cause massive pulmonary vasodilatation. 
Um, and two of the things that you can do, um, if you think this is the this is what you're trying to do, if you've got a baby with pulmonary hypertension, you want to lower the CO2 and you'll put them in 100% oxygen. So the, the oxygen causes pulmonary vasodilatation and lowering the CO2 causes pulmonary vasodilatation. And that's what you'll want if the baby's got pulmonary hypertension. But it's the opposite of what you want in these children. Um, so if you hyperventilate, and as we talked from the, the asthmatic case, um, these are stressful intubations. Um, without even thinking, you'll be ventilating these babies quite quickly, unless you correct yourself. Um, you'll lower the CO2. You'll not get... Um, the pulmonary vascular will dilate, and blood in preference will flood the lungs, and you'll get no systemic blood flow, and the baby will very quickly arrest on you. You'll get a similar situation if you were to put the baby in 100% oxygen. Um, when we think of the cardiac babies, um, people always worry about 100% oxygen because it'll cause the duct to close. But in these babies, putting them in 100% oxygen um, will actually cause the pulmonary vascular resistance to decrease and flood the lungs at the expense of getting blood to the systemic circulation and cardiac arrest will very quickly follow. Um, this isn't just related to intubation. So these babies are obviously very sick and have potential to deteriorate. And the first thing when a baby deteriorates is you, you'll often put a mask on, you'll maybe give them some PEEP, you may need to provide positive pressure ventilation by face mask. Um, and if you put them in 100% oxygen and hyperventilate them, you can make things so much worse. So again, these are a group of patients you need to say to yourself um, when you're intubating them. Again, remind me to bag slowly after intubation. Um, and as well, you need to be careful with how much oxygen you're using. Most of us will use, you know, limit the oxygen to 30%, 40% at most, as we would do in any duct-dependent congenital heart disease, um, where we're trying to prevent the duct from closing. Um, I think, the, like I say, the other situation where you can get yourself in trouble, where it's an emergency, you're called to the bed space and you start ventilating the patient without thinking. And if you've got the oxygen set at 100%, you can cause more harm than good. Um, so I think in this situation, again, having a little note stuck on the, the blender, you're not, to, not to turn up above this amount, or making sure the blender isn't by default set at 100% is useful. So don't hyperventilate an intubated asthmatic, RNA in it with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. So different reasons for each of them, but just two groups of patients who won't tolerate it well at all. Okay, pearl number 42. Consider performing an abdominal x-ray to rule out necrotizing enterocolitis in infants with sepsis and no obvious source. Um, so this is just something I've seen a number of times over the years. Um, Interim babies and sometimes infants of a number of months of age um, who present with signs of sepsis. Maybe fairly non-pacific, pyrexia, raised CRP, no obvious source, um, who have later turned out to have NEC when they've got an abdominal x-ray performed for some other reason. For example, um, a nasogastric tube that didn't aspirate particularly well, or they've had a PIC line put in, and NEC has been an incidental finding. Um, so like I say, I've had, a, a, over the last few years, a number of babies presenting just the same way. And they, they haven't been your typical preterm babies, but that's not what I look after. Uh, like I say, they've been infants at times up to a few months. Okay, so it's just something to keep at the back of your mind as a cause of potential sepsis. And particularly if your patient had risk factors, for example, they were an ex-prem with previous NEC or a cardiac baby, 
um, it might move it higher up your list of possibilities for the, the cause of sepsis. Okay, so moving on to the next one, pearl number 43 is for a child in VF, think toxins, cardiac or electrolyte problems. Um, so VF arrests in children are fairly uncommon. Um, most of the rest are PA or asystole. And again, for most of them, they're caused by hypoxia. And for these PA and asystolic arrests caused by hypoxia, uh, sepsis, um, they respond well to standard APLS care. So you'll intubate the children, you'll put lines in, you give them adrenaline, you'll give them fluid. The problem is, if you've got VF and you manage it just like that, you're not going to have a great success rate. Um, you need to treat the underlying cause. And if the underlying cause is likely to be different than the hypoxia that causes most of the other types of cardiac arrests in children, and you ignore um, the likely cause of the VF, you're less likely that you're going to be successful in treating it. Um, so for most of the, the VF arrests I've seen in children, um, like I say, these are the three things. They're either in cardiac babies, uh, it may be known cardiac disease, congenital heart disease, or it may be acquired um, heart disease in kids who've developed a myocarditis or cardiomyopathy. Um, electrolyte problems, particularly potassium, or toxins that the child has taken. Um, and again, obviously, if it's one of these three causes, um, you want to obviously try and treat the underlying cause. The cardiac disease you might not be able to do much with, um, but certainly the toxins, there's antidotes about, um, and the electrolyte problems, you can crack these pretty quickly as well, and you're going to have more chance of success. Um, and this is actually one of the favourite scenarios that I run in the unit when I'm doing a little bit of simulation. So it's a child sold as sepsis, admitted from the emergency department, um, who then goes on to develop seizures, um, blood pressure instability and very quickly into a VF arrest um, and ultimately if it's managed as per standard APLS um, the resuscitation is unsuccessful um, because the child rather than actually having sepsis has had some tricyclics um, and it's actually taking a step back and going this isn't how children with sepsis behave they don't then tend to go on and have seizures widen QRS on the, the monitor um, proceeding into VF. Um, so it's taking a step back and questioning the diagnosis. Um, but if you have a child who presents in a VF arrest, hypoxia, although it can be the cause, it's less likely in children to be the cause. And think about toxins in particular. Think about electrolyte problems. So prioritise getting the blood gas off to see what the potassium is. And prioritise having a look at the heart with echo. And if there's no signs of um, cardiac disease and your electrolytes are all normal, and although there's no history of ingestion of toxins, in this situation, I would be tempted to give a bolus of intralipid in case the child has had some unidentified toxin, um, particularly if you've already tried to defibrillate and it's been unsuccessful. Um, so again, VFRS in children are rare. Um, they're, not, they're not common. They're unlikely to be caused by the normal things that cause children to arrest. And if, it, if you do see it, think about toxins, cardiac disease, or electrolyte problems. Okay, moving on to pearl number 44. Um, it has been intubating children in cardiac arrest or with upper airway obstruction, put a stylet in the endotracheal tube. 
Um, so intubating these children isn't as easy as if it was an elective intubation. Um, they're actually quite tricky intubations, particularly in the smaller babies. And the reasons for that is, one, you're not probably prepared to do the intubation. So you're having to do it before you're actually ready. Um, so you haven't got your equipment organised the way you want it. You might not have your trained airway assistant with you. Um, as well as that, um, you're, there's often vomit and secretions in the airway. Um, your child probably isn't adequately positioned on the bed. And there's an awful lot of movement artefact with the chest compressions ongoing. So when you factor all that in, um, although under routine circumstances the child probably has a grade 1 airway and would be a straightforward intubation, intubating them in a cardiac arrest is slightly more difficult. And you, if you try to lift the epiglottis with a straight plate, you might have it lifted, but as the chest compressions continue, they quite often knock the epiglottis down again. So you're probably going to have to make do with the end of a straight blade in the vellecula um, and a lot of cricoid pressure on to get a good view. So in this situation, you've got a lot more control of your endotracheal tube if you just put a stylet in it. Um, and you might only get a glimpse of the cords for a short period of time and you want to get the tube in as quickly as you can. So for me, if I'm ever intubating in a cardiac arrest, I do try to get a stylet into the tube. Not always possible because quite often, like I say, you're not, you don't have time to prepare. But if you have 30 seconds before the child arrives, it would be one of the things I would, I would ask for. Bougie isn't as useful in a cardiac arrest, um, in my opinion, um, particularly in the small babies, because you, you might have the bougie in, but then you have all the movement artefact as you're trying to feed the tube over a small, flexible bougie. And a five French bougie, there's a lot of movement in it. Um, when you're passing the tube and they can quite often kink as well. So my preference in this situation very definitely is a stylet. Um, the same reason an upper airway obstruction if you're intubating a child with bacterial tracheitis, um, vocal cord edema, um, I would much rather have a stylet than a bougie. And again it's the same reason you might be able to get the bougie in but then getting the tube over the top uh, of, the, of a small size 5 flexible bougie in a small baby. It doesn't always feed so well. Whereas if you have a stiffer endotracheal tube, this would be one of the situations I would prefer a stylet. So if you're ever intubating a child, particularly a small neonate in cardiac arrest or with upper airway obstruction, I would encourage you to put a stylet in the endotracheal tube. Okay, pearl number 45. Um, use POCUS during your assessment of difficult ventilation or cardiovascular instability. So POCUS, point of care ultrasound. Um, I think this, certainly in this Current age is an absolute must. So using ultrasound is by far the quickest way to detect a pneumothorax. It's obvious, it's normally obvious by the time you get an x-ray of its attention pneumothorax, but even small subtle pneumothoraces um, will be much more obvious on ultrasound than they will on x-ray. And you're gonna your assessment for a pneumothorax only takes 10 seconds, 5 seconds on each side, and you can very clearly say your patient does or doesn't have a pneumothorax. Um, it doesn't require a lot of effort to learn. Um, there's great resources online that you can do it and then what you, all you need to do is practice on a few patients. Um, I have some videos up in the Paediatric Emergencies podcast and under the, I think it's under the Bronchiolitis podcast, there's a video of what a pneumothorax looks like um, on ultrasound. Um, so again, that's very simple to do. Um, the other thing that is really easy to do as well is a subcostal view on echocardiography. Um, 
With this one simple view, you can very quickly tell whether your patient has a pericardial effusion, um, ruling out tamponade. Um, you, can, you can get a quick look at the IVC, which gives you an idea on filling. And you get a rough eyeball of what the cardiac function looks like. And again, this only takes about 20 seconds to do. Um, it's fairly easy to learn as well. Um, the, one of the resources I use was 123 Sonography. So you put that into Google, you'll come to their website. And they have four great uh, free videos covering the basics of echocardiography. So if you were to do look at those four videos and do a bit of practice, um, that's probably all you need to do to be able to work out function, filling and effusions. So really, really simple things to do. It requires a bit of work over a few months. Um, but if you add those skills um, when you're assessing a sick child with either ventilation difficulties or cardiovascular instability, it's really going to mean that you can diagnose and see exactly what's going on so that the treatments you offer are going to be appropriate to what the child needs. Without them, you're really just guessing. Sometimes you'll guess it right, others you won't. For me, if I've got a sick, crashing child in front of me, I don't want to guess. I want to give them the right treatment. And without ultrasound, you'll struggle to do that. So if it's not something you're currently doing, um, I really think it's something you should learn to do. Okay, pearl number 46. Um, for those who infrequently intubate neonates, becoming skilled in video laryngoscopy with a traditional shaped blade will make this much easier. Um, so this is for the sort of people who intubate adults all the time and maybe once, twice a year will have to intubate a neonate. So the process of going from your traditional Mac blade to a Miller blade and trying to lift uh, an epiglottis in a small sick baby isn't the easiest thing to do. Um, and the difficulty, because these babies have uh, a lax glossoepiglottic ligament, a large floppy epiglottis, if you don't lift the epiglottis and you put the, the Miller blade tip into the molecular like you're used to doing, you're probably only going to get a grade 2 view at best with direct laryngoscopy. However, if you had a video laryngoscope, um, you don't need to lift the epiglottis. Um, you, even with a Mac or Miller shaped blade, if you go into the molecular, most of the time you're going to have a perfect grade 1 view. Um, so video laryngoscopy makes this much, much easier. So the problem with direct laryngoscopy is that the difference um, between what you need to do to intubate an adult and what you need to do to intubate a neonate, there's quite a difference between it. Um, with video laryngoscopy, the technique is exactly the same because the whole business of needing to lift an epiglottis um, in a neonate is no longer required with a video laryngoscope. Um, so if you, in your normal adult practice you and you were mostly using direct laryngoscopy, if you were to introduce a little bit of video laryngoscopy um, and become confident with it in adults, and then were to use the same technique when you had to intubate the neonates, you would really find it so much easier. Um, I've done a lot of video laryngoscopy over the last three or four years, um, and it really is so straightforward. There's no difference between me intubating a neonate compared to me intubating a 12-year-old. It's just as easy. Um, obviously, with a direct laryngoscope, it's a little bit more fiddly with a neonate than it would be with a 12-year-old. So that would be my advice to you, is pick up, if you're not currently doing it, gain some skills with a traditional shape video laryngoscope, um, something that either uses a Mac 
or miller blade um, and you use that get confident using that in adults so when you do need to intubate children under a year you won't find it any more difficult than you would that adult patient Okay, pearl number 47. Uh, practice using a hyperangulated video laryngoscope blade for routine airways will increase your chances of success when faced with a difficult airway. Um, so looking at video laryngoscopes, there's two main types of video laryngoscope. There's the ones that use the traditional shaped blades, um, Mac and Miller shaped blades, but because the camera is at the tip of the video laryngoscope, there you get a large magnified view of the laryngeal opening and positioning is much less of a problem so they they certainly they make things easier um but because they use a traditional shape blade they will improve the view in a difficult airway slightly but if you have an extremely difficult airway a hyperangulated video laryngoscope will really help so that's something like a glidoscope and our track, something that is perfect for seeing around the corner. Um, and that will generally, in a, in a true difficult airway, give you a better view than one of the traditional video laryngoscopes. The problem with it is that although you get a great view, getting your tube to the cords and then ultimately into the trachea is much more difficult than with a traditional shaped video laryngoscope blade. Because the traditional shaped blade moves the tongue, makes a still makes a straight passage to the cords, passing the tube is much easier. And that's why for the last pearl, for the straightforward airway, I've recommended a traditional shaped video laryngoscope blade because that's going to make it much easier. However, um, when faced with a difficult airway, proper difficult airway, although a, although a Mac or Miller shaped blade or video laryngoscope will probably help in most situations for the truly difficult airway a hyperangulated blade is going to be much more useful and the problem is if you don't practice with it and the only time you ever use it is when you come to the truly difficult airway your chances of success are going to be much lower than if you practice with it so what I would recommend is if a hyperangulated video laryngoscope is your plan for when you have that truly difficult airway you need to practice with it in your routine airways so that when it comes to that truly difficult airway the chances of success are going to be much higher okay moving on to pearl number 48 um, just because you've needled a tension pneumothorax doesn't mean that you've relieved the tension and prompt chest chain insertion should follow needle decompression um, so definitely I think there's a misconception that once you've needled a tension pneumothorax you've relieved the tension um, and you can take your time about getting the the chest training um, and certainly I had a case recently which this very definitely wasn't the case um, we had although the, the chest had been needled there was very definitely still tension there um, there was no response really to the, the needling of the tension pneumothorax and it was only when we put the drain in that we got a massive hiss of air um, actually the hiss persisted for quite a number of seconds um, so it was obvious that the needling Although it had, certainly the needle was in the right place, either the pneumothorax continued to accumulate at such a rate um, or the needle was just too small to allow the tension to become decompressed. So it's just a little point. Don't be lured into false sense of security just because you've needled the chest that you've relieved the tension. You may not have. Obviously, in some situations you will. You'll turn the tension into a simple pneumothorax 
but um, for most tension pneumothoraces, you should quickly get on with the chest strain, just in case you haven't relieved the tension. Okay, pearl number 39. Uh, don't become reliant on new technology, as you might not always be able to use it. Um, so this goes against uh, a number of the other pearls where I'm telling you to use ultrasound, use video laryngoscopes. Um, but again, you need to know the pros and cons of all the technology that you're using. And the problem with technology is it can fail, or you might not be able to use it. Um, so certainly over the last three or four years, I'm probably doing about 95% of my intubations with video laryngoscopes. Um, I've used a, a wide variety of the range. I do a lot of testing for the major manufacturers and I sort of contribute to the design of new video laryngoscopes. Um, so I, I would much rather use a video laryngoscope, but the times I actually don't get to use one are when it's an absolute crash intubation and I don't have time to set the video laryngoscope up. So if I'm called to a cardiac arrest in the emergency department, the chances are I'm going to put it in with a direct laryngoscope. Or if I'm called to a crashing child in the unit and they need to be intubated just now and I don't have time to turn the video laryngoscope on, there's a direct laryngoscope set up, that's when I'm going to use it. So although I would like to use video laryngoscopy for 100% of my intubations, I still have to do a little bit of direct laryngoscopy to keep my skills up. Because it's actually the sickest patients that I intubate tend to be with direct laryngoscopy because I don't have time to get the video laryngoscope out. I suppose with ultrasound, the other situation is vascular access. Um, we can all get um, very reliant on using it for our lines, but say the machine fails and you're stuck in a district general hospital with no paediatric probes, you may still need to be able to put the lines in with landmark technique. So again, I think there's keeping your skills up in both direct laryngoscopy and line insertion is particularly important. Um, and another case I had recently... Um, I think you have to be careful about what you say, but um, I was very confident that I was never going to have to needle a chest blindly or insert chest strains blindly um, in, in the case the patient had a pneumothorax. I was always fairly confident that I always had an ultrasound available when I was out in transport or in the unit. Or I could very quickly get one down to the emergency department to be able to work out did the patient have a pneumothorax or not. Um, I then had a case where a patient deteriorated um, with gross surgical emphysema all over both sides of the chest and the neck. So when we tried to work out what side the pneumothorax is in, because obviously if you needle the wrong side, um, you risk causing pneumothorax on that side as well. Um, so ultrasound on the chest. And the problem with the surgical emphysema couldn't actually see down as far as the lungs. So I ended up having to put bilateral chest strains in. Um, I was fairly confident this was something I was never going to have to do because I use POCUS routinely and I was always going to have an ultrasound available. But a situation will come up that will surprise you and you're not going to be able to use it. So it's important you don't lose the old techniques. Okay, so moving on to the last um, pearl for this podcast, pearl number 50. Mental rehearsal of rare emergencies is a great way to identify potential problems, allowing for solutions to be found in advance of the actual emergency. Um, so other ways we try to do that, we always try to learn from other people's mistakes so that we try to avoid making them. That's something that's encouraged. And simulation is great because if you make a mistake in simulation or you identify a problem in simulation, you can then go about rectifying it 
um, planning what you would do in a real emergency um, before it actually occurs. So it's a great way to improve care. Um, but I would put it to you that you don't actually need to run the simulation out to work out what the potential problems are. Um, and this is something I used to do quite a bit in my head. I would come up with a simulated emergency and work out how this would run in different areas of the hospital, in different situations, depending what the resources available were, staff were available. Um, I'm trying to come up with any potential problems so that I could then come up with solutions to prevent the problems from actually occurring. Um, and this is something I would do quite a bit. And a lot of the stuff that's in the Pediatric Emergencies app um, sort of came from this. I was trying to work out what are all the possible emergencies. And into that app, I wanted to put solutions of how you would deal for them. So let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, say you had a child who came into your emergency department in cardiac arrest. You did a blood gas and found the potassium was 1.5. How would you raise that potassium up? Uh, in the situation of cardiac arrest. Because that's obviously not something you want to be working out at the time, because you're not going to be able to do it. Um, so that's something I've put into the Pediatric Emergency app. I did a bit of research, worked out how to do it, came up with a, a way to calculate how much of a bag of fluid, normal saline with 20 millimoles of potassium, you should give as a bolus to bring the potassium up. Um, so again, the only way you can do that is to have thought about what would I do when this problem occurs in advance and come up with a solution for it and a solution that you can access at the time. So there's lots of things you can look at, for example, but I think mental rehearsal of emergencies is a great way to improve. Okay, so that was 10 paediatric critical care pearls. Um, I hope you find them useful. Um, I'll probably try and put out another podcast in the next few weeks with another 10 paediatric critical care pearls for you. Um, like I said, I'm going to try and get the podcast out a little bit more frequently. Um, and I've got a few ideas for things that I want to do, similar to the pearls, because it doesn't take an awful lot of work for me. I just, um, a few things I jotted down yesterday, uh, and there's no preparation, obviously, to recording the podcast on these. Um, some of the other things, the, the bigger topics and waiting for the retrieval team section take a little bit more work. And I, unfortunately, at the moment, I just don't have the time for the bigger podcasts. But I've got a few ideas for maybe talking a few case reports, um, things like that, over the next few weeks. So if you've any of your own critical, paediatric critical care pearls, please leave them at the website um, so that others can benefit from them. And I'll try and not leave it so long before the, the next podcast. Thanks for listening.